Our message this morning is a bit different than usual, and mainly because we feel we need to be impacted by the great theme of this week. We're not seeking to be sensational or really dramatic, but to try to bring to you what we believe is in some way what took place with Jesus before Easter Sunday, before the resurrection, which should have tremendous impact upon our lives, each of us. And I ask you to try to picture with me what I will try to relate to you during this sermon this morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Our Father, there is no human way that anybody can portray what really took place with Jesus in his suffering, his agony, and his death. But with your Holy Spirit's help, we believe that revelation can come. And through words and song, I pray that you would impact us all today with the story that never grows old, the greatest story ever told. We are here to receive, we are here to know Jesus better. So come Holy Spirit and make him known. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The story begins actually in John chapter 16 where Jesus gathered his disciples together in the upper room. This was to be his last supper with them. The account of the actual giving of the bread and the distribution of the fruit of the vine is not listed in this chapter, but is referred to in Matthew and in Luke. The meeting they had in that room is all of John 16 and of what Jesus shared with them at that time. One of the things he said to them was that he was going to have to leave them, that he would have to die. They could not understand this. They could not comprehend it at all. In fact, they rebuked him for even suggesting it. But Jesus knew why he had come. Then in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, the priestly prayer of our Lord is found. He prayed, Father, make them one, as we are one. It is a most beautiful passage of Scripture. This was a prayer to the Father for us, just before his scourging and his crucifixion. In John 18, the account of Gethsemane is recorded. In this chapter, a number of incidents that most of us are familiar with come into view. Let me remind you of them this morning. First, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Judas, of course, led the band of soldiers to the place where he knew Jesus would be, the place of prayer. This is where Jesus often retreated for special moments with the Father. Jesus was always in that 
closet place. And Judas knew where he could find him. Secondly, in Gethsemane, Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus spoke to Simon in very stern tones. Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Interesting that in Luke 22:51, Luke records, being a doctor, that Jesus stooped down, picked up the ear of Malchus, and put it back on. I like that. Then thirdly, in the garden, the officers of the Jews bound him with ropes. He was bound as man, for as God, he could have severed those with one motion. He was submitting himself to the eternal plan of the Father. Before the foundations of the world, it had been planned that Jesus would give his life a ransom for us all. The Lord submitted himself to those ropes as they led him out of Gethsemane. Fourth, in that chapter, he was led to the palace of the high priest. The first of the brutal attacks upon Jesus took place in that palace. I will recount for you no less than 10 physical attacks on Jesus during this period of time. This was the first. What was the attack? One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. He slapped Jesus with his hand. I can see the head of our Lord jerking to the side, leaving a red mark where he had been struck. Again, remember these various attacks as we move along. Fifth in that chapter in John, chapter 18, Jesus was taken to several other places. After the stop at the palace of Annas, father-in-law to Caiaphas, he is led to Caiaphas himself. Caiaphas sends him off to Pilate, the governor from Rome. Pilate said, I do not want the blood of this man upon my hands. I find no fault in him. So Pilate sent him to Herod. The highest power possible was Herod. Herod decided he wanted nothing to do with the matter either. So back to Pilate came Jesus, the fifth stop in what was the most unheard of trial in the history of man. Five different places all at night they took Jesus. The second time he stands before Pilate, the Roman governor decides to put the responsibility back on the Jews. This was a good move for him to save his career as a Roman leader. So at that, we are introduced to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. The words that open this text are these. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. Jesus was turned over to the Jews after he had been scourged as a prisoner of Rome. After moving through the night, 
from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod to Pilate. Pilate enforced what he enforced upon every criminal brought before him. He had to be scourged. Now this is the part of scripture referred to by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. Do you remember it? The prophet saw Jesus hardly as a human. He saw him as a lamb, but a lamb broken, torn, disfigured by the treatment of the people. Rome had a special treatment for her criminals, a very special treatment. It was the cat of nine tails. It was the scourging process, and I read one time where nine out of ten of the victims of Rome died from the scourging. It was so bitter and cruel. This is not a cat of nine tails, but it will help us at least in part. In the cat of nine tails, they put bone and stone and glass in the leather so that it would tear at the victim's back. Roman soldiers knew how to do this very, very well. How they could tear the body, taking the very life out of the individual with this whip. The nervous system, the muscles, the entire body would react to the whip that was placed 39 times upon the back of each victim. Let us set the pace as we listen.
let me try to picture for you the place of scourging. It was an arena. And the people of Rome and the people of Jerusalem loved to come and make it a sport. It was a spectator event. The scourging of criminals. In this arena-like place filled with people, the ground was dirt. In the middle, there would be a cross beam where they would fasten the wrists of the victim, pulling him up so that his tiptoes barely touched the dirty ground. There would be a pole where the captain of the guard with the white hat stood with a stone in his hand to keep track of the number of stripes laid upon the back of the victim. They could not go one more or less. It had to be 39. It was his task to make sure the count was accurate. There would usually be three guards involved and a word about the Roman soldiers, six feet at least, 200 pounds minimum, strong, athletic men. I am just a shade under six feet and thankfully quite a shade under 200 pounds. These men were strong men of stature, trained at what they did. Now, those three soldiers would not know which one was to do the deed on any given day. The captain of the guard would pick the one that he wanted for that particular day. And if he became exhausted because this was an exhausting task, then there would be reserves. Another item in the arena that you need to picture is the trough of dirty, muddy water. Where the whips rested, no disinfectant here, no antiseptic here, dirty, muddy water. Three whip handles extended from the trough. At the given moment, the captain of the guard would motion to the Roman soldier who would come and take one of the whips out of the trough and move to the rightful place where he would measure his distance to the back of the person that he was to flog. Now they dropped the garment from the victim so that the entire back down to the hips would be exposed to the whip, bare flesh. So picture Jesus with leather thongs around his wrists pulling him up off of the dirty floor of the arena. His back exposed totally to the hips. Long, flowing hair. And the Roman guard measuring his distance. And when the moment has arrived, the captain of the guard would give him the nod and he would, at the left shoulder, place the first strike. 
That is why the Bible speaks of stripes, because that's exactly what they were, stripes. Methodically from the left shoulder, moving across to the right shoulder. They would pull layers of flesh off until it would hang down over the hips of the individual. The captain of the guard has marked one. The soldier again hits Jesus right next to the first strike. And again, and again, and again. And Jesus is writhing in pain, pulling himself up, trying to avoid the whip because there was nothing more agonizing than to have one layer of flesh after another pulled from your body, exposing nerve, muscle. On and on, clear to the right side. Also, it would be well for you to picture the hair of Jesus being ripped off when the whip moves across the back. So that on the dirty ground beneath his feet, there would be blood mingled with sweat and hair as he writhes in agony, taking lash after lash. Peter said, as he quoted Isaiah 53, with his stripes, we are healed. Psalm 139, 129 rather, verse 3 says, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Strip after strip. After a little while, Jesus can no longer pull himself up and he hangs limply. As the soldier completes his task, covered with sweat, and the captain of the guard marking finally number 39, stopping his soldier at that point. Remember who he was, the God-man. Remember what Isaiah said of him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Why did he say that? Because he was not good to look upon it was the picture of a sheep being led to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. He did not cry, let me out of here. He did not ask for 10,000 angels to come and save him. He took the stone. He took the glass that was in that leather and he took the agony of it all that we might be whole people, that we might be complete. Jesus submits himself to the penalty of Rome for our healing, for our victory. And as the soldier finishes his task, the crowd finally quiets down after having 
been crying for blood because they seem to sense there's something different surrounding this scourging. There is a look in the victim's face that is different than any other. He does not have that hard look. He has not cursed. He does not say, I'll get even. They see a look of compassion. And they are very quiet now as they view Jesus of Nazareth.
Will you try to see him with me? The soldier who had been standing by now rushes forward, cuts the thongs around the wrists of Jesus. He falls into his own blood and flesh. The disciples, oh yes, they move swiftly away for fear they might be next. Where was Peter, who not long before had cut off the ear in the garden trying to defend Jesus? Where is he now? Those rough soldiers take Jesus by the arms, lift him up to his feet and push him forward. Something strange noted by these soldiers with this man. He still has strength. He is not dead, nor does he seem even near death. So often they had bent over a victim breathing his last. From the shock to the system that whipping provided. So at this point, something a soldier I don't think had ever done before. He quickly put a crown of thorns together and he slammed it onto the head of Jesus and acknowledged him as a king. The third brutal attack physically on Jesus, a rough thorny crown pressed into his brow so blood from his head now mingles with the rest that is flowing freely from his body. Is that all they do? Oh, no. John 19 relates that they smote him with their hands. That's another attack. They smote him with their hands. They were hitting Jesus, these soldiers of Rome, knocking him about like a punching bag. Mark 15, 19 puts it this way, and they smote him with a reed. Now, I wasn't sure what a reed was, so I had to go do some research. I found out a reed is what I hold in my hand. It was a cane. It was a solid piece of wood. This is very heavy. And not only did they punch him around with their fists, but it said they hit him in the head with a reed. They hit Jesus with a cane. It was sport. It was a game. The more they could inflict agony and pain, the better they liked it. And they were doing a good job of it. Behold the lamb. His back is bleeding from the whipping. It's ugly and it's raw. A crown of thorns is on his head with blood dripping down. He is red from the beatings of their fists and of the cane, the reed. And they put a purple robe of mockery over all of the agony that he is experiencing. They strike him with their hands and hit him with the cane. And they then spit upon him again and again and again. They were crying out, I suspect, something like this. No one could be so foolish as to believe he's really a king's spit. You're a king spit. 
We will add to your kingly stature. Spit. They bow their knees, worshiping him in mockery. Now, I think that must have been the hardest thing for Jesus to take. The mockery. Harder than the cane or the whip or anything. They must have made fun of him with their ha-ha-has. You claim to be a king. Free yourself. Bleeding all over. Spittle hanging from his beard. King. Mighty king. We worship you. Oh, mighty If I may interject this thought at this point in the story, this question really, whoever they were that mocked him like that, I wonder what they will say when they stand before the same person in the judgment. Well, they will. At that time, he will not be bleeding. Spittle will not be hanging from his hair or his beard. A crown of thorns will not be upon his head. He will be decked with glory and honor, and they will stand before him. I wonder, oh, I wonder what they will say. Pilate now says, as they push Jesus back his way, Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? And they shout, crucify him, crucify him. So they remove the purple robe, put his own clothes back on him. 
and place a rugged cross on that bleeding, broken back where no flesh could be found. Still very much alive, he carries his own cross through the gate of the city. Simon of Cyrene is compelled to help him as he stumbles along the way. Could there have been a bit of compassion in a Roman soldier who saw that Jesus was about to collapse when he beckoned to Simon? Even before the cross, they wanted to give him stupefying drink, but he refused it. He would take no drug. All other victims received it gladly. It would calm the nervous system. It would relax the muscles that were being torn and punished by Rome's methods. But Jesus refused it all. He did not take one ounce of medication as other criminals did on a regular basis. He bore the pain and agony totally without aid. And I want to say I love him for that. He gave everything he had for my redemption and for my healing without any help. Form the picture in your mind. The Roman guards, those great men of strength, all experts of a particular task. One nailed the victim to a tree. Another lifted the cross up and let it sink with a thud into the earth. Another with a sword to pierce the side or to break the legs. They all had their tasks to perform and they were the best of the trade. Then the ninth attack on Jesus' physical man took place. Very roughly, they stripped him of his clothing. Now, when the Bible says that, please remember he had nothing left on his body. The humiliation of it. Here he was, the great creator of the universe, naked before his mother and his brethren. And in the story comes a unique development. It really intrigues me to think about it. And it involves the Roman soldier who had to nail this victim to a cross. You see, most every other criminal, they had to drag to that place. But Jesus did not have to be drugged. Jesus willingly offered himself up. He went over, I believe, and laid himself out on that old cross to the amazement of those Roman soldiers who didn't have to coerce him at all. This is the spike. We sometimes think of eight penny nails. I think when we talk about crucifixion, this is far from an eight penny nail. This is the type of spike the Romans used to fasten their victim to the tree, to the wood. And so Jesus spread himself out on that old cross and that Roman soldier who had this is his responsibility. Nail Jesus with that great Roman hammer to that tree. Hey, this is wood he made. 
created with his own word. But now he has spikes through his hands and his feet holding him to the very thing he created. I ask you why? The answer is very simple. So we could be here this morning like this. So we could be in life and peace and joy and know that whatever happens, we have an eternal home with him. He paid it all. So he writhes in agony as the bones are cracked. As they lift the cross up and let it thud into a hole, pulling the muscles and the bones and the tissues as the jeering mob watches. A lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Now what happens when a person hangs from a cross? Could I share it with you from a doctor's perspective that I have in my possession? Fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. As the victim pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through the feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push oneself upward. Hanging by the arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the muscles between the ribs are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get one short breath. Then carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. During these periods, he probably uttered the seven short words that we read in the Gospels. Looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice, he said, Father... Forgive them. Then he turned to the penitent thief. And he said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Then looking down at young John, the disciple, he said, behold thy mother. And looking to Mary, he said, behold thy son. Then forth was the cry of the 22nd Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have been told that some victims could hang on a cross for three days, a week, even more before dying. What agony it must have been. Hours passed for Jesus. He has been there now, according to the scripture, from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. 
from the third to the ninth hour. Limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation. Searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as it moves up and down against the rough timber of the cross. Then the deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the sack around the heart slowly closes. Notice Psalm 22:14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. The loss of tissue fluids reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in some gulps of air. When he uttered the fifth word, I thirst. Psalm 22:15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. A sponge soaked in cheap sour wine is lifted up to his lips, but he refuses to take it. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues now. And he utters the sixth word. What a word. It is finished. His mission is completed. He can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nails, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. To make sure of the death, the soldier drove his lance through the space between the ribs and into the heart, and the Bible says immediately there came out blood and water. The weight of the world's sin broke his heart. The cross didn't kill Jesus. He said, Father, I commit my spirit. He who knew no sin was made sin in that moment for us.
agony during those hours, but none so deep as the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the whole world. The cry of Jesus after my God, my God, is the cry of a man who has come out of the dark into the glory of the light and who has grasped the crown. Please note with me, he died a victor and a conqueror with a shout of triumph on his lips. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. When Pilate heard that Jesus had already died, he didn't believe it. He sent for the centurion. The centurion said, he is really dead. I was there. And furthermore, I believe he was the son of God. I can see Pilate breaking out into a sweat. He tried to wash the blood off of his hands, but never could. He wanted to save his career, but lost his eternal soul. So near to Jesus, and yet so very far. Pilate did not believe he could be dead in six hours. That is why we say the cross did not kill Jesus. In John 10, Jesus said himself, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He further said, I will take it up again. People are heard to say, the cross killed Jesus. No, Jesus was still in very good condition, comparatively speaking. It says that he cried with a loud voice. It does not say that his chest thumped, or that his head thumped on his chest in death, or that his head fell wildly to either side as he gave up the ghost. It says he bowed his head. He was in full control of what was taking place. The cross did not kill Jesus. The whip did not kill Jesus. The nails did not kill Jesus. Well, what did? A broken heart. When that Roman spear went in, there came out blood mingled with water. Physicians say it is the sign of a broken heart. When he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, he felt the sins of all of us. Not just those soldiers playing with the dice at the foot of the cross. You see, I believe Christ felt all of our cheating, all of our lying, all of our scheming, all of our adultery, all of our idolatry in his own body on that tree. If we cling to him, clutching what he did that day, the dawn will break, the light will come. All we have to do is believe that God allowed Jesus to die for the sins of the human race. That a marvelous Savior walked across the pages of history right into our need, right into our life. From that skull-shaped hill of failure, he marches to the conquest of the world. And he appeals to us to give him our heart. Eleanor Bradley was shopping on Fifth Avenue in busy Manhattan. She tripped and broke her leg, dazed, anguished, and in shock. She called out for help. 
not for two minutes, but for 40 minutes. As shoppers and business executives, students and merchants walked around her and stepped over her, completely ignoring her cries, after literally hundreds had passed by, a cab driver finally pulled over and took her to a hospital. When I read about Eleanor Bradley, I thought about God's agape love. Jesus jumped to his feet and rushed to this planet when he saw all of us bruised and broken, unable to get up, and he did not wait. One time he had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he won, and we win because of him, because of his victory. God put on Jesus the iniquity of us all. What does it mean to you today, my friend? Have you come to the old rugged cross? Have you come to the hill called Mount Calvary? And have you beheld there a Savior bleeding, a Savior dying for you? Please remember that when he hung on the tree, he bowed his head. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This did not kill him. It was my sin and your sin that killed him. And I don't know what it means to you, but I want to serve him. I want to live for him. I want to love him with all my heart. And I want to make this week a real special week of thanksgiving for what he did. Let's bow our heads. Spirit, come into this room and make Jesus real to anyone who is not ready to meet the Lord. 
What a tragedy it would be to go through Holy Week, Lord, without knowing Jesus and having our sins forgiven. Come in powerful ways to each man, woman, boy, or girl here who needs you in a special manner. While our heads are bowed and we're thinking about this great story, this true story, I wonder how many of you would like to respond on Palm Sunday to give your life to Jesus. If you've never done it, why not today? Why wait? Or if he's not been real to you, this would be a wonderful day to say, Jesus, I want to really know you. I want to pray for you. If you would indicate your need by lifting up your hand wherever you sit, I would appreciate it. Give me an opportunity to remember you in prayer. God bless you. A couple of hands over here on my left, down here, across the auditorium. God bless you back there, up in the balcony. Oh, praise God. People, Jesus loves you. He died for you. He really cares about you. And he would follow you to the ends of the earth to make sure that you were ready to meet him. And he's come to this place today to touch your life. Surrender to him. Father, touch these who have responded by raising their hand. You know what they need. In a moment, may they accept my invitation to come to this altar and bow their knee and say, Lord Jesus, I truly want to know you and I surrender to you. And others who have done that but haven't been baptized in water, that they will come over and get the material and be baptized tonight to prove their love for you by action. That's what love is. It's an action term. Love is. And may we express that by action and response. Thank you for caring for us and doing what nobody else could do. We love you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, please, as we sing. Oh, how he loves you and me. your hand could I ask you to come and bow your knee at this altar and give us an opportunity to place some material in your hand share a moment with you make Jesus Lord of your life you come as we sing it'll be the greatest moment you've ever experienced we want to help you as we sing just step out oh how he loves you
coming.